Isn't it exciting to be able to come together and to assemble in the name of the great God of heaven, to do so with the express delight that's in our hearts, to in fact offer worship unto the very one who not only made this universe and all things in it, but certainly including you and me. And as you perhaps well know, we have studied for a number of Sunday evenings now some world history as it relates to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. I would invite you to turn again to that book. We have looked in some detail through six lessons at a host of developments historically. And I think as we have noticed it, sometimes world history is not the most thrilling of subjects in school for, for our students and maybe for us, but nonetheless... I think we have been appreciative of the fact that God has revealed through the book of Daniel especially the developments historically and inasmuch as those happened exactly as God foretold they would, it ought to dwell in you and me with an increased sense of the fact that the Bible is inspired and that its author, of course, is the very one who orchestrated and structured all of history. Tonight, as we come to installment seven of this series... We do so, and here are some introductory thoughts that in many ways bring us to appreciate the following interesting truth. God had delivered in Deuteronomy 18 a very simple statement. How were people to know during that day and in, in that time who was the false prophet and who was a true prophet? Well, God had revealed through Moses that if the thing foretold does not come to pass, it is not a prophet of God. What does that say about the book of Daniel who looked down the stream of time hundreds of years and everything prophesied about these kingdoms we've studied so far came to pass exactly, minutely, and precisely in the way that he said that it would. Oh, how true a prophet Daniel was. God gave him the messages of which, of course, he spoke. As we come to this continuing engagement in our study of Daniel, you probably have already noticed that chapter number 9 will be our focus for the night tonight. It may not be the most familiar of chapters of the Old Testament, but I hope that before we're finished this evening, you'll be impressed with the remarkable nature of just how much God revealed to Daniel. So, with your finger there in Daniel chapter 9, let's begin by at least setting the context as to what unfolds before us in this chapter. The first two verses of Daniel 9 describe it very, very thoroughly. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, I'd like for us to develop in some detail those two verses. On that slide before you, you can appreciate the following with me. God had, of course, decreed that His people, Judah, were to go into Babylonian captivity. A number of Old Testament books had asserted that, but specifically the book of Jeremiah is the one that Daniel was reading. You may notice in verse 2 of Daniel 9, Daniel himself affirmed that he had been reading the book of Jeremiah. Don't you find it amazing that Bible writers read other books in the Bible and they felt in them the power and the truth and the inspiration of them? And that isn't the only time that happened in, in, in Scripture, but at least on this occasion, Daniel was studying the book of Jeremiah. As he was studying, you'll notice in verse number 2, reference is made to 70 years. And immediately that brings us in mind to two references in the book of Jeremiah. 
One in Jeremiah 25, verse number 11, and one in Jeremiah 29, verse number 10. On both of those occasions, the God of heaven had revealed to Jeremiah that my people, the people of Judah, due to their sin, their iniquity, and their rebellion to me, I'm going to cast them off into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And so they knew exactly how long, if they trusted God at least, that they would be in captivity. It'd be for seven decades. As Daniel read these things, he became very much convinced of something. Would you appreciate the following with me? We're told exactly when Daniel was making this study. In verses 1 and 2 it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. In point of time, that brings us to 538 B.C. Now immediately, I suppose it'd be fair to comment. Think about how old Daniel must have been at this, by this point in time. As we've studied already in our series, Daniel was taken captive in 605 B.C. And hence, if he was still prophesying alive and well here in the character of this particular statement, Daniel had to have been at least 84, 85 years of age. Here was one blessed a bit beyond that fourscore years, and yet still faithful was he to the nature of his calling, the one who served God even in these somewhat difficult circumstances. At this point, you begin to notice, first two verses of the chapter, Daniel came to realize something. What did he immediately do in the verses that followed? Beginning in verse number 3 and continuing through verse number 19, is one of the most powerful, one of the most beautiful, arguably the most compelling prayer in all of the Old Testament. It's fairly lengthy, so I won't read all of it, but you might want to take the opportunity, if you have one this week, to just read the prayer that Daniel offered to God. It really is a touching thing. As you give thought to what Daniel expressed in that prayer, he confessed his sins and those of his people, he, in fact, besought the mercy and the greatness of God to fulfill that which was His Word. In fact, as you come near the bottom of that slide, God immediately proceeded to answer. While He was yet speaking, that is, while Daniel was still speaking, verse number 20 reads it like this, And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. Can you imagine the scene as it developed? While Daniel was praying, God answered that prayer immediately. And He did so by dispatching the angel Gabriel to come to Daniel. And in the verses that follow, Gabriel revealed to Daniel some continuing matters about the future developments of kingdoms and times. As you come to the bottom of that slide, might I invite you to notice at least part of the wording of verse 24 that Matt read for us just a moment ago. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city. Remember, Daniel had been taken captive a number of decades earlier. He hadn't seen Jerusalem in decades. But yet Jerusalem was the special city. It was the one at that time where that temple had been. It was the place where God had placed His name, 1 Kings 9 verse 3. And yet on this occasion, 
Gabriel, by the power of God, revealed to Daniel. Daniel, verse 24, I'd like to tell you about your people and about the city of Jerusalem. And so tonight, we're going to cast the spotlight on that. Doing so takes us to the next slide. You may notice that a portion of this is a brief rehearsal of some of those things we've just now noted. But it's important to appreciate it in light of what we're about to see. First of all, we've already appreciated there was 70 years God decreed upon the people. Have you ever wondered why did He pick 70 years? Why wasn't Judah in captivity for 60 years? Why not 80? Why not 200? The God of heaven and His infinite wisdom selected 70 years. Amazingly, the Bible tells us why. Let's take just a moment to solidify that thought in our mind, and with it we'll return then to Daniel the ninth chapter. Could I invite you to notice, the 70-year period was explained in 2 Chronicles 36. Please revisit the closing chapter of 2 Chronicles and listen to what God had to say explaining the 70-year period of captivity. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 20 of 2 Chronicles 36. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath, to fulfill threescore and ten years. Now there we have an amazing set of developments. As you and I contemplate the 70-year period of captivity, God here gives us some insight as to the nature of His selection of that time period. Could I ask you to notice it went like this. Beneath the law of Moses, God had commanded that the land every seven years was to enjoy a Sabbath. When we studied in Leviticus 25, for example, we noticed the decree and the detail of that. Every seventh year, you're just not to make a crop there. The land is to have a year of rest. It's to lie fallow on that occasion. In this particular passage, notice again what was said in verse 21. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years you'll notice that it would appear that the children of Israel were not faithful to abide by that law of God. They didn't allow the land to lie desolate every seventh year the way they were supposed to. For here in this passage, that's the reason for the 70 years captivity. God said, as long as you're not on it, as long as you're in captivity, then the land will lie fallow. Then it will fulfill those Sabbaths. If we do a little arithmetic, You'll notice then that 70 years, given again that every seventh year was of course to be that year during which it was to not be planted, 70 times 7, it would appear that 490 years the children of Israel had neglected. They'd failed to celebrate or keep that Sabbath year in regard to the land. If you think about that for a moment, that's going to occupy a very important position in just a moment. 490 years. I say that because that number is going to reappear in just a few minutes. As you come near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice something now back to Daniel chapter 9. 
So the 70 years captivity looked backward over 490 years of Israel's failure. They had failed to celebrate and keep that land Sabbath as God had commanded it. Now God tells Daniel something's going to happen 490 years in the future. Don't you consider the beauty of this? It's as though Daniel was at exactly the halfway point. 490 years of wickedness or at least failure on the part of Israel. What's going to happen, God, 490 years into the future from Daniel's time? Go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. Seventy weeks. A week, of course, having seven days. And here was a poetic, a rather symbolic way of describing a period of 70 weeks where each one of those days represents a year. 490 years into the future, something amazing was going to happen. Something truly remarkable, something for which you and I today are still the blessed beneficiaries of it. Now, in light of all of that, we're going to develop that in some detail as we proceed through the lesson tonight. But at least we have a foretaste of what's coming. 490 years, God revealed to Daniel something's going to happen. At this point, as we come to the next slide, let's see what it was. I'd like to read Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. The last four verses of Daniel 9, here is God's detail as to what He revealed through Gabriel to Daniel that was going to happen 490 years in the future. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. What a breathtaking scene. You probably have already figured out that this is pointing to that remarkable occurrence. Even as verse 25 says it, the Messiah was going to come. One of the most remarkable Old Testament prophecies, I'm convinced, is this one. Let's do it justice perhaps for the next few moments by appreciating the fullness of it and the majesty of it. On this slide, first of all, Daniel, 490 years into the future from his day, notice who was coming, verse 24. You appreciate that that which was going to occur would involve finishing the transgression. It would involve making an end of sin. It would involve making reconciliation for iniquity. And hence, you and I immediately notice, given our opportunity and blessing today, we think about the marvelous work that Jesus accomplished. This, after all, was a prophecy. 
rather specifically about when He was going to come. There are well over 300 Old Testament prophecies speaking about in some way either Jesus or the church or something relating to His work. This one is by far the most specific in terms of chronology. The studious Jew, by way of these verses, could know exactly when to expect the Messiah. Count from the specific time, as we're going to develop in a moment, 490 years and He's supposed to occur. Now, what's going to happen when He comes? Verse 24, finish the transgression. Make an end of sins. Make reconciliation for iniquity. All of us know that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished this. After all, there was a patriarchal age as well as a, a mosaic age prior to this Christian age, and yet both of them were imperfect. Even under that law of Moses, there was no perfect sacrifice for sins. The best they could do on every year's basis on that day of atonement, month number seven, day number ten, was to do that which Leviticus 16 described, and in so they could never even make the conscience clean they basically made remembrance of sin each year. Oh, how much they must have longed for perfect forgiveness, perfect consideration of having that sin blotted out and removed. Yet God told Daniel that's going to come 490 years from the very time, the very moment in which you are. I would ask you to consider just a few of these verses that describe the marvelous atoning work accomplished by Jesus Galatians 1 verse 4, the whole world has opportunity to be forgiven. You also notice in 2 Corinthians 5 21, He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Righteousness, that's what was told to Daniel would occur. In Revelation 1 verse 5, we're washed from our sins in His blood. Isn't that incredible? Perhaps the final two, Hebrews 9, 28 and Hebrews 10, 14. We notice in that closing verse to Hebrews chapter 9, indeed, Jesus was there said He's coming back on some occasion. When He does, He's coming back not to make sacrifice for sin. That's already happened. But He's coming back to take to glory those that are His own, those already forgiven. Hebrews 10, 14, For by one sacrifice He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Maybe in light of all those things, remember, Gabriel revealed to Daniel almost five centuries before the time that this was going to happen. However, that's not all that was said. You'll notice he was going to bring in everlasting righteousness according to this same verse. I would invite you to consider that beautiful passage in the opening stanza of the Roman letter. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul testified, did he not, then that that righteousness is presented in the words of the gospel. Not only that, you'll notice something else is affirmed near the close of verse 24 of Daniel 9. It says that he would seal up the vision and prophecy. Put yourself just a moment in the shoes of Daniel. Daniel lived beneath the law of Moses. He lived his whole life appreciative of the power and the majesty of that law. 
We know how important dreams were. Daniel had been blessed with dreams. We know how important beneath that law that prophecy was. And yet here Daniel was told there's coming a time, a moment when vision and prophecy are going to be sealed up. Look at these thoughts with me. To seal up the vision prophecy foretold a day and a time when miraculous matters like that would cease. They would not be permanent and perpetual. They would come to an end. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8, stated directly that of those miraculous spiritual gifts, including prophecy, it's going to, need, it's going to end. It is not going to continue. We also notice in Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4, the statement there is also made that, again, these miraculous matters like miraculous prophecy and miraculous considerations, like under discussion here, they're going to cease. You and I thus know that what Daniel prophesied did come to pass. We don't have those blessings anymore. God in His book has told us they ended, and they ended shortly after the time of the Messiah. One last thing on that slide. You notice that finally it is said in verse 24 that the anointing of the Most Holy would occur. The anointing of the Most Holy. That is another reference to Jesus Christ. He would occupy His rightful position. Though the Son of God He was, He would occupy His rightful position, reigning over the greatness of His kingdom. Acts 4 verse 27, Acts 10 38, both highlight the reality of those things. I believe we would each agree to this point from Daniel 9, 24. Many remarkable things were foretold to Daniel, but we aren't finished yet. For verse number 25 takes us up to the following as well. Would you consider those things with me? As we notice two more things that were stated in the verses following, that would be accomplished by the Messiah. First of all, Confirming the covenant. That wording you'll notice is found expressly in verse 27. He shall confirm the covenant. The covenant. Immediately our mind races to Hebrews 9 verses 16 and 17 in which we appreciate that when Jesus died on the cross, He put in place the better testament, the better covenant, that of course will remain in force literally until the very end of time itself. He confirmed the covenant. Not only that, you'll notice it says He would cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Again, verse number 27. I'm sure that in Daniel's day that seemed a remarkable thing. Remember, under the law of Moses, he was accustomed on a frequent basis of offering sacrifices. And yet, we have here stated, there's going to come a day when there'd be no more of that. You and I know very well that that has long since happened. We don't need to offer any bulls or goats or sheep or any such thing anymore. That sacrifice has already been made for us, the one perfect sacrifice forever. God, on this occasion, revealed to Daniel about the day that those things would cease. As we continue onward in our study... This chronology deepens as we come to ask the following. So far, we've merely noted 490 years was the generic way that was stated in verse number 24. God stated more, though, than just that. Let's notice it again and develop it according to this slide. 
we might begin by asking, it's a fairly easy matter. If we could determine when that chronology was to begin, any of us could add 490 to it and figure out what the year would be when these remarkable events were to happen. At this point, thankfully he tells us when to start counting. Might I ask you to notice verse number 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem... So if you and I could ascertain when there was a commandment involving the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem, all we would need to do is add 490 to it and it would take us to the occurrence and the reality of these things we've studied so far this evening. As you look at these particular matters, I would simply point out that from the Old Testament itself, we aren't left much to wonder about this. Three different occasions, there was a particular expedition of Jews that went back from captivity to the landscape of Jerusalem. One of them occurred, as you can see, in 536 B.C., led by none other than Zerubbabel. That record is given to us in the book of Ezra. I submit to you that's not when the count begins. There was another one led by Ezra himself in 457 B.C., there was a third one led by Nehemiah in 444 B.C., the goal of which on the last one is to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Let me submit to you that the count started with the second one, the return of Ezra. Let's put some of those numbers together as follows. In verse number 25, God splits up the 70 weeks into sections. Notice He says in particular, to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks. So there was an initial period of seven weeks where again each one of those weeks representative of the fullness thereof. Seven times seven, a period of 49 years would be involved, the text says, in rebuilding Jerusalem. Reconstructing its wall, making it again a city ready for habitation. And historically that's exactly what happened as detailed in the book of Ezra and also the book of Nehemiah. Forty-nine years involved in rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. But then God went a little further. He says in verse 26 that there will be three score in two weeks. So 62 more weeks with again the representative of what was involved in that. That 62 weeks comprised a period of 434 years. Again, all you do is just multiply 62 by 7. 434 years. Any of us could take a calculator, piece of paper, and add 457 B.C., add 49, and then add 434 more. You ultimately find that 434 plus 49 is 483. 483 years forward from this very moment brings us to 26 A.D. May I invite you to notice the special event that happened that year. 26 A.D., that's the very year Jesus' personal ministry began. Exactly dovetailing with that which God revealed through Gabriel to Daniel. Count from 457 B.C., exactly 483 years, the Messiah was to come, and He did. His personal ministry began. We know that because of Luke chapter 3. At this point, as you think about those things, would you appreciate just a moment 
how that history was written before it happened. God revealing to Daniel the details of this chronology. As you look even more though, God detailed more things just than this. So now we have when that personal ministry began, but you'll notice God told Daniel something else in addition to this. In verse 26 it says, After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. He'll be cut off. And in the next verse he detailed that it would be in the midst of the week. What about the midst of the week? And what about the cutting off of the Messiah? Well, as you'll notice at the bottom of the slide, the midst of the week would be 3.5, right? Seven days in a week, and half of that would be three and a half. And with each one of those representative of a year, we're looking at three and a half years. Jesus' public ministry lasted three and a half years. And He was cut off by being crucified on the cross, exactly as God told Daniel. As you come to the bottom of that slide, that brings us then to appreciate the year our Savior died. It was in the spring of A.D. 30. That's the year Jesus gave His life. That's the year that the Jews prompted the Romans to nail Him to the cross. That's the year that ultimately He brought to fruition the fulfilling of that which we've studied in Daniel 9.24 so far. The Messiah was cut off. As you appreciate a bit about that chronology, might I ask you to go forward a little bit more because you probably have noticed there was even more in this. Notice this language with me, verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And then the next part of the verse, might I ask you to notice there's something very interesting in the language. If you like to make notes in your Bible, you might observe. It then says that the people of the prince. So here's another reference to a prince, but this prince is not the same one that was mentioned in the previous verse. In verse number 25, notice the Messiah is the prince. In verse number 26, this prince is coming to destroy Jerusalem. They're different princes. This other prince, the one now mentioned, takes us directly to what our Savior Himself stated. And we aren't left to doubt this either. You might recall that rather remarkable scene in Matthew 24. On that occasion, four of His apostles asked Him, When shall these things be? Jesus had just spoken, I'm telling you, there's a day coming when not one stone of the temple will be left on another. They, it seems, couldn't wait to ask Him, Lord, when's this going to happen? And what will be the sign of Thy coming into the end of the world? Matthew 24, 3. As Jesus ascended that Mount of Olives, He gave them the answer. He proceeded to detail to them, and He quoted from Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. He said, The, des the desolation of dest and destruction of Jerusalem will be that which was spoken of by Daniel. And He quoted this passage. The destruction of Jerusalem was what's in view in the closing part of verse 26. That prince coming was the Roman general Titus who brought his troops in the year A.D. 70 and crushed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed it completely, including the temple. That prince on that occasion, you'll notice, brings us to appreciate one more time. The 70 years captivity looked 490 years in the past. God revealed to Daniel 
something 490 years in the future. I hope we're all impressed with the chronology we've studied tonight as it relates to Daniel the ninth chapter. As we come to the close of that slide, it was entirely possible then for those Jews, as they read the book of Daniel, they could know when the Messiah was supposed to come. All they had to do was appreciate the prophecy, add up the years. Isn't it also true that they should have known the Messiah was supposed to be cut off? They should have known some of the details and specifics of His labor and work, and yet they chose so often to reject Him. They chose so often to turn away from Him. Let's conclude our lesson. Daniel 9 has been a breathtaking chronological development. It truly has been the direct aftermath of those previous lessons we've studied. Notice we studied the Babylonian kingdom, followed by the Medo-Persian, followed by the Greek, followed then by the Roman. And yet now, 490 years, which was right in the days of the Roman Empire, the Messiah was supposed to come, and He did, just like God said that He would. Praise be unto God, that was about 2,000 years ago, and you and I can now appreciate the marvelous majesty of this prophecy and how that it came to pass by the will of God, just as He said it would. Surely that helps us all to understand. Our God is in control of the affairs of time. He'll determine when this world will end. He'll determine when the blessed Jesus Himself will return. Are you ready? Am I ready? It might be tonight. It might be tomorrow. None of us know. But we know that God knows. We read, of course, in Mark 13, verse 32, that exactly the Father knows. May I submit to you tonight how wise it is to be ready, to always live ready, so that no matter when it is, we'll be ready, of course, to leave this place and to stand ready in judgment. And so as you close that slide... We've seen this rather remarkable scene in Daniel 9. Now, our series isn't quite finished. There's more yet to come. But we are getting pretty close to its consummation. For now, we have come all the way to Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. Have you allowed Him to wash your sins away? Are you living in harmony with His will each day? If there's one in the audience, one or more, that has never rendered initial obedience to the gospel, why not do it tonight? All of time has been orchestrated by the Father. And you need to be a servant in His kingdom. You need to be a faithful servant to Him. You need to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we can assist you in that way tonight, how wonderful a day of celebration for you would be. If, on the other hand, you have become a Christian, but you haven't lived faithfully, Maybe you've forgotten that all of time is in the hand of God. Why not come back to your first love this evening? If sins in your life are of a public nature, confess them appropriately, James 5, 16, because we are assured that God will forgive as we approach God on your behalf. Tonight, if we can help you by praying on your behalf, why not, in fact, come forward tonight? This song of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of help to you, why not come? While together we stand and sing.